0: Did you know that every year, property crimes like burglaries and package thefts spike over the holiday season? That's why there is no better time than now to invest in Safe. This week, SimpliSafe are giving Red Collar listeners 40% off their award-winning home security system. We love Safe because it has everything you need to make your home safe. Indoor and outdoor cameras, comprehensive sensors, all monitored around the clock by trained professionals. You can get a complete home security system starting at just over $100. This offer ends soon. Take 40% off at slash redcollar today. Go to slash redcollar. It was December 18th, 1975, and some fishermen were floating through the quiet waters off the coast of the resort town of Pattaya, Thailand. When they found the body of a young woman, floating in a tidal pool. She was wearing only a flowered bikini. The young woman's body was taken in for forensic testing. But at first, detectives weren't able to make too much progress. They did testing and found out that she had alcohol and hashish in her system. So they thought that she may have had too much to drink or smoked too much, maybe gone for a late night swim, and gotten disoriented. Unfortunately, this was something that police had seen before, with Western tourists. They went around to local hotels, but no one seemed to know who the victim was. So for the moment, she was anonymous. It was months before Thai authorities were able to determine that the young woman's name was Teresa Knowlton. She was an American from Seattle and her drowning had not been an accident. She had been strangled and she would be the first of many victims. Teresa had stopped in Thailand on her way to Nepal She was supposed to study Buddhism at a monastery there. But on her last night in Bangkok, she got waylaid. She met someone who befriended her, charmed her, and offered to take her to the beach. This man, the serial killer, was handsome, mysterious, spoke several languages, and was charming and charismatic. Over the years, the killer became so notorious that the press gave him not one, but many nicknames. He was called the Serpent. For his habit of slithering away from the police, and the Bikini Killer, because Teresa and another victim were drowned and strangled in their swimsuits. His victims were mainly Western travelers, backpackers and tourists along the so-called Hippie Trail that wound through Thailand, Nepal, Hong Kong, India, Afghanistan and Turkey. The killer would make friends with his victims and often offer to help them out of a jam. Unbeknownst to them, this would usually be a problem that he had created. Then he would drug them, kill them, and steal their identities. To this day, he's been convicted of two murders, but investigators believe that he's killed at least 24 people, maybe more. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. In 1975, police in Thailand were investigating the death of Teresa Knowlton when another body was found on the road. That victim was a man named Vitaly Hakim, and his body had been badly burned. Shortly after that, the bodies of another young, unidentified couple were found. Their bodies were still burning when they were found. And once the flames were put out, forensic testing showed that they had been beaten, strangled, and still alive when they were set on fire. All of the victims were Western. All were young, approximately between the ages of 18 and 25. And yet there seemed to be no obvious connection. Police weren't sure if the Westerners had known each other. They didn't even have all their names, and they were about to find more victims, thousands of miles away in a different country. In Nepal, two more burned bodies were found. They were later identified as Hink Batanya and his fiance, Cornelia Hemker. Police investigating Cornelia and Hink's case searched their room. They found that their passports were missing, but when they talked to the people staying next door to the couple, they told police that there had been another guy hanging around with them, a jewelry dealer from Bangkok. Police went to Kathmandu, the capital, and started asking around a place known back then as Freak Street. It's a small street located at the south of Kathmandu. Today, it's called Old Freak Street. This area refers to the hippie trail. And back then, it was kind of a free for all. Cannabis was legal and it was openly sold in shops that were operated by the government. Now the government did start cracking down on the hippies during the 70s and putting in a lot more regulations. Eventually, a lot of them left and relocated to India. And Nepal started to focus their tourism more on trekking and mountain climbing. But the remains of the hippie trail are still there. You can buy tourist trinkets but it's kind of like Times Square in New York City. It's still a popular physical destination, but it doesn't have the danger or edge or energy of the taxi driver days, 1970s and 1980s New York. Police found Cornelia's journal, and it mentioned the jewelry dealer that they had been hanging out with, a man named Alain Gaultier. Now they needed to find Alain. They did find some people who remembered seeing a man matching his description. But they said that the guy they saw went by another name, Carl Gassel. So they put out the Nepalese equivalent of an APB for Carl Gassel. Soon they set up police checkpoints and they found him traveling with his wife Ida. So the couple calling themselves Carl and Ida were brought into the police station. Police also brought in the woman who claimed she had seen Cornelia and her fiance Hank talking to the jewelry dealer. But the witness could not positively identify the man who was in the police station, using the name Carl Gassel, as the same man they had seen previously. So Carl and Ida were free to go. Police did get more evidence. Someone had seen a white car near the bodies with a license plate that was matched to Carl Gassel. But when they went to arrest him, he was gone. He and his wife had fled, and police had no idea where to find them. So the trail went cold. Back in Thailand, police were still working on the identity of the couple who had been burned and dumped there. They discovered that they were the real Carl Gassel and Ida Bosch. Like Cornelia and Hink, they had written a letter home saying that they had met a new friend, a jewelry dealer from Bangkok. Now police knew that Alain Gauthier and Carl Gassel were aliases. They believed that their killer took on the identities of some of his victims after stealing their passports. So if the real Carl and Ida were dead, then who the hell was this guy who had killed them and taken on their identity? Now, at this point, a Dutch diplomat, Herman Nippenberg, started investigating the death of the Dutch couple. He got heavily involved in the investigation. At first, it was just about him offering to help the Thai police out, but the search for this killer haunted him, and he ended up being on the case for years. He searched the suspected killer's home. He found poison and syringes that had been used to drug the couple, but the killer was long gone. But some of the people who knew him were already talking to Interpol. Police were about to get the killer's real name, Charles Sabaj. And this was just the beginning of an investigation that would last decades. Charles Sabaj was born in Saigon, Vietnam in 1944. His mom was Vietnamese and his father was Indian. He's told reporters over the years that he had a troubled childhood, that his dad left when he was young, and that his mom would leave him for long periods of time. This was a turbulent time in Vietnam, going through and after the Vietnamese war. He said that once his mom came home after a long period of time, he said this was over a year, and acted totally happy to see him and started talking to him in Vietnamese, which he says he no longer understood, so he replied to her in French. Eventually, they went to France and his mother's boyfriend adopted him. He was sent to boarding school in France, but he faced a lot of racism there and was bullied. He said that he continued to be unhappy and ran away several times. He once even took a ship and managed to make it as far as Africa, according to the book Bikini Killer by David Morrissey. As a teenager, he started down the road of a life of crime, first with petty theft, then with more serious crimes. He got sent to prison for armed robbery And it was while he was in that prison near Paris that he met a wealthy young man who was a volunteer there. Now this became part of a lifelong pattern. He would meet people who he could manipulate, get power over them, and then get them to participate in his crimes. This young man's name was Felix. He had wealthy parents and he belonged to a glamorous social circle in Paris. So after Charles was released, he started hanging out with Felix and his friends. He was handsome and charming and spoke several languages, so he fit right in. He moved in with Felix and met a woman named Chantal. Like Felix, Chantal came from a wealthy family. And even though she knew about his shady history and the fact that he got sent to prison for stealing a car basically right after they met, they got married. Chantal helped him escape during a failed armed robbery attempt at a jewelry store at the Hotel Ashoka in 1973. They went to Mumbai, India and tried to start a new life. Chantal had a daughter named Usha. They used forged documents to create new identities. And to keep the money rolling in, they started robbing tourists. They focused on Westerners traveling the hippie trail. This was the height of the Flower Power Peace and Love movement, and a lot of people traveling during this time were very trusting. Unfortunately, Charles and Chantal preyed on this. This was a different time. When I was 16, I lived in Paris by myself. Now, this was in the late 90s, and this is a major city. And even during that time, there were no cell phones. There was no internet. I remember having to go to a pay phone and getting a phone card. And I had to make very expensive calls to my family. They could cost up to $100 at a time. And this was the late 90s. If you went to Asia during the 70s, your family would potentially not hear from you for months or even years at a time and they wouldn't necessarily think to be alarmed. At first, when Charles and Chantal's new friends started disappearing, there was just no one to notice. Charles was sent to prison after his failed robbery attempt at the hotel, but he faked an illness and drugged the prison guard. Eventually, he was recaptured and returned to jail. Charles borrowed money from his family and staged another escape. This time, he went to Kabul in Afghanistan. And he pulled exactly the same stunt again. He faked an illness, he drugged a prison guard, and while the guard was passed out, he just walked out of jail. In these parts of the world, if you had money, you could bribe prison guards. And Charles was very good at bribing people to get what he wanted. After this next escape, he went to Iran on his own. His wife went back to France and told people that she never wanted to see him again. For a few years, Charles continued this criminal behavior Traveling around the world using various aliases, stealing people's passports, and when that passport stopped working, he would just rob someone else. He had a younger half brother named Andre, and at some point the two of them hooked up in Istanbul, Turkey. They committed fraud, and Andre was arrested. So Charles escaped, and Andre was left to serve an 18 year sentence by himself. Charles took on various identities and names. Sometimes he'd be a jewelry salesman sometimes a drug dealer, whatever he thought would impress his mark. Around 1975, with his brother in jail, Charles enlisted the help of a couple of new people. The first was an Indian man named Ajay Chowdhury. He was another criminal who went on to become Charles' second-in-command, and at the time, his best friend. Charles' scams were pretty simple con games, They relied on manipulating his victims into believing that they should be grateful to him somehow. Usually this was because he appeared to do a favor for them. For example, in one case, he actually stole passports from two French policemen. Then he found them and gave them back. Of course, at that point, the officers were very thankful to him and thought they owed him one, even though he was the one who had stolen the stuff in the first place. Another young Frenchman named Dominique met Charles at a cafe and Charles drugged him. When Dominique woke up, Charles claimed that he had dysentery. He said that he knew how to take care of him and basically told Dominique he'd saved his life. So he drugged him and then cured him. But when Dominique started to feel better, he was grateful, so the manipulation worked. At first, Charles poisoned and drugged people to steal their money. It was sometime in 1975 before he crossed over to murder. And once he crossed that line, It seemed like killing became to him just another possible solution. He was stealing from people and killing them so that he would not be exposed. Another of his known followers was a woman named marie Andre Leclerc. She was just a regular girl, a medical secretary from Quebec, Canada, who went to India in search of adventure in spring 1975. While there, she met Charles under one of his aliases, André Gaultier. She started a relationship with him And when she went back to Canada, he wrote her letters. Soon he'd convinced her to come back to Asia. She believed he was her soulmate. Soon they met a couple, befriended them, invited them to the beach, and then drugged their coconut milk and stole all their stuff. But that couple, who were Australian, were lucky. At least they were still alive. So Charles, Ajay, and Marie kept traveling around. Charles needed cash. He was still trying to make a go of this gemstone business he was negotiating a lease for a building and he needed to raise some money. That's when he met 21-year-old Teresa Knowlton on her way to Kathmandu. Around that time, he talked another man, Vitali Hakim, whose body would later be found burned, into going with him on what Vitali thought was gonna be a business trip where he could participate in a jewel deal. They went on the trip, but when they came back, Vitali wasn't with Charles. In fact, he was nowhere to be found. On November 29th, Vitali's body was found outside of Pattaya. After Charles killed Vitali, he stole his passport and flew to Hong Kong. He had decided to try his luck at the casinos in Macau. That's where he met Hank and Cornelia, who would become his next victims. He convinced them to fly to Bangkok Investigators later found out that he reeled in Hank and Cordelia because they got sick. Now, of course, Charles had poisoned them and made them sick, but they didn't know that. So when he offered to take care of them, they were grateful. But then, while they were sick in bed at Charles's place, Vitali's girlfriend, Charmaine, flew to Bangkok. She basically showed up at his door. And at this point, it seemed like Charles was starting to panic. After that... Charmaine's naked body was found in the water. She had been strangled, like Charles's other female victims, and the bones in her neck had been crushed. Investigators say that Charles put Hank and Cornelia in a car and dragged them out in a remote area. He beat them severely, strangled them, poured gasoline over them, and set them on fire. And after these bodies were found, people close to Charles started talking. The two French policemen that he had stolen passports from and then found them later, and another young man all flew to Paris, and they started talking to Interpol. Charles and Marie used the Dutch couple's passports to travel. Then they met Carl Gassel and his wife, Ida, killed them and stole their passports. By the time Charles flew back to Nepal after that, police had started to figure out that he could be connected to Cornelian Hink's murders. He was arrested, but once again, police didn't have enough evidence to hold him. So once again, he was free to go. Like Charles Manson, Charles was collecting kind of a cult-like family, but he was better looking than Charles Manson and much more cultured. He was traveling to Singapore, India, and Bangkok and kept collecting more and more family members along the way. By 1976, Charles was using yet another alias, Robert Grenier, Police had no idea where he was. They had lost him. And at some point around this time, his sidekick Ajay disappeared. Most people believe that Charles murdered him. In 1976, he and Marie met two young women lost in Bangkok, Mary Ellen Ether and Barbara Smith. By now, Charles had another scam going. He was using his girlfriend, Marie, to set up honey traps for his potential victims. He promised a young French man, Jean-Luc Solomon, a night of passion with his girlfriend Marie, using her as a honey trap. Then he slipped drugs into Jean-Luc's chicken curry, waited until he passed out, and robbed him. Jean-Luc became severely ill. Hotel maids found him the next morning and took him to the hospital, but Jean-Luc died. And after Jean-Luc's death, Charles started looking for one more big score, he was about to commit his most ambitious crime yet. He was going to poison 22 victims at once. The holidays are coming up, which means that we're leaving home and traveling more often, and that we're also sending a lot of gifts. But it's also the time of year when property crimes like burglaries and package theft spike. That's why there is no better time than now to invest in Simply Safe. This week, Safe are giving red-collar listeners 40% off their award-winning home security system. We love Simply Safe because it has everything you need to make your home safe. Indoor and outdoor cameras, comprehensive sensors, all monitored around the clock by trained professionals who send help the instant you need it. It was even named Best Home Security Systems of 2021 by U.S. News and World Report. You can easily customize a system for your home online in minutes and even get free custom recommendations from SimpliSafe. These are Simply Safe's biggest discounts of the year. You can get a complete home security system starting at just over one hundred dollars. There are no long-term contracts or commitments. It's a really easy way to start feeling a bit more peace of mind. This offer ends soon. Take forty percent off at SimplySafe.com/redcollar today. Go to SimplySafe.com/redcollar. Charles had befriended a big group of 22 postgraduate students who had traveled from France to Delhi. Then he pulled his usual stunt of slipping his sleeping pill and laxative combination into their food at the Vikram Hotel. But this time, Charles badly miscalculated his dosages because these students didn't fall asleep. Instead, they started throwing up and falling down on the floor. They quickly figured out what happened So even while they're vomiting and passing out, they turned on Charles. They overpowered him and in a dramatic scene actually tied him to a chair. Then they called the police. Police arrested Charles and Barbara and Mary Ellen, his accomplices. Barbara and Mary Ellen agreed to cooperate with investigators. Mary Ellen, by the way, reportedly agreed to testify against him, but later panicked when she saw Charles in the courtroom and changed her mind. That's how strong his hold was over her. Mary Ellen and Barbara went to prison. They became deeply depressed. Both would try to take their own lives. Barbara did testify against Charles in 1977. She was pardoned and released from prison in 1978. She eventually came back to the UK, went to university, married, and had children. The Daily Mail newspaper tracked down Barbara, who's now in her 60s, pretty recently. She told them that she still wasn't sure how this all happened. She was just the daughter of the village postmaster. According to the newspaper, Barbara, after she came home, did not talk much about her time with Charles. Many of her own relatives and people closest to her don't know the details of what happened. She said that Charles had a way of spotting people who were vulnerable and far from home and down on their luck. Police back then didn't have an understanding of red-collar psychopathy like they do now. In fact, this was in the very early days of criminal profiling. Serial killers were just starting to make the news. Ted Bundy and the Hillside Stranglers in Los Angeles were making headlines nationally in the US. But back then, investigators thought that serial killers had violent compulsions to kill, that they couldn't control themselves. Police had not seen a serial killer like Charles. He was primarily a fraudster. He didn't seem to be driven by some man at need to kill. Police called the kills, and this is a great phrase for people who study red-collar crime, byproducts of his lifestyle. He never really talked much about motive. He was known to hate hippies and said that his murders were some sort of a statement on Western capitalism. He told other investigators that most of his murders were just accidental drug overdoses gone wrong. But investigators believe that these were classic red-collar crimes. At some point, Charles had realized that murder could be a possible option. And after he didn't get caught, he got bolder. The victims had begun to realize they were being scammed and threatened Charles. So he began to be afraid that they could turn him in. And it was this fear of detection that caused him to kill. One of Charles' accomplices and victims, a woman named Georgina Nunez, was just 18 years old when she met Charles. She's written a memoir about her experience. Parts of it are excerpted in the Express newspaper. Georgina said she left her home in the Netherlands and, like so many young women at that time, headed to Goa, India. But along the way, she and her boyfriend started to argue. They were running out of money. Reading between the lines, it seemed like she was getting annoyed with him because he was using her money and he liked to drink coffee a lot, which, at that time and in that part of the world, was a super expensive habit. So they were pretty much broke. She was low on money and had ditched her boyfriend when she met Charles Sabraj by chance in Pakistan in 1972. In her memoir called Roads and Redemption, she said that Charles offered her a job as a hostess. She said he told her she would be good for the job because she spoke English, French, German, and Dutch. He told her she could earn up to $1,000, which at the time, especially in that part of the world then, seemed like a small fortune. She said that Charles was very slick, but also said something seemed off about him. She talked about how Charles would poison people by slipping drugs into their coffee. She said that the eight-part BBC series that was made about the case incorrectly said that he would poison the tea. She said this would not have been bitter enough to camouflage the taste. In horrifying detail, she described her role in A Theft Gone Wrong. She said that Charles took her to Lahore, Pakistan, to meet with a taxi driver named Muhammad. She said Muhammad was a very nice guy and a father of six. Charles then forced Muhammad into the trunk, she said, because he wanted to steal his taxi. She insisted that she thought Charles was just planning to drug Muhammad. But then they started to drive through the desert and she started to realize Muhammad was in that hot trunk the temperature was going up and Charles kept telling her to make more sleeping potion to inject him with. The excerpt from the memoir Roads and Redemption in the Express newspaper read, Each time he gives those directions, I become more alarmed and worried about Muhammad. How long has it been since he's had anything to drink? How long can a man survive in this heat under these conditions? The car is filled with bad vibes. End quote. She said that eventually she got out of the car. She went to the back, looked into the trunk, and found a horrifying scene. She wrote, I step out and walk to the back of the car, where Charles leans over the open trunk. His mouth is tight and he holds the syringe in hand. I look into the trunk. What I see is appalling. Muhammad, positioned like a fetus, lies in a pool of blood. A cry of anguish escapes my mouth. My God, what have you done? Is he dead? I bend over to feel his skin. It is cold, not hot. I look a little closer and, horrified, notice that Muhammad's eyes have rolled up into the back of his head. Why has Charles done this? Just so he could steal a taxi? I realize Charles is the type who would steal a crutch from a blind beggar. I realize I am a prisoner in the hands of a dangerous, bloodthirsty predator. If he can do this to Muhammad... What could he do to me? My fear grows as it becomes clear I could be murdered, End quote. She later wrote that Charles kept control of her by taking her passports and all of her papers. And by the time she realized that Mohammed was dead, she said she felt like she had no way of escaping him. The Dutch investigator, Herman Nippenberg, who spent years tracking Charles and made it his life's mission to catch him, told the newspaper, The Telegraph, that he actually believes that Charles could have kept getting away with his crimes. He said that he got caught because he believes that at heart, Charles is a gambler. And when he tried to poison 22 people at once, he tempted fate. Herman told the Telegraph newspaper, quote, I think, in essence, his downfall is that he is the born gambler. This is in line with Nietzsche, that the only thing in life is to live as dangerously as possible the tightrope walker building your house on the slopes of Vesuvius. So you push your luck as far as you can because you are different." End quote. This really speaks to Charles's psychopathy and narcissism. Every time he failed to get caught, he just grew more confident. And by the end, he seemed to be convinced that he could do and get away with anything. After his female accomplices talked to police, Charles was finally charged with murder he was sent to prison in New Delhi. He went on trial in July of 1977. He was charged with the murder of Jean-Luc Solomon. And for that murder, he was sentenced to 12 years in the Indian prison, Tahar. This was India's largest prison, and it was notoriously tough. But Charles, who had a history of bribing people to get what he wanted, actually thrived in this system. According to various media sources, Charles funded his bribery by eating a bunch of gems on the way into prison and at some point, and I'm sorry, there's no nicer way to say this, pooping them out and using them as currency. Charles's girlfriend, Marie, was also found guilty of drugging the French students, but she was later paroled and returned to Canada. According to media reports, she developed ovarian cancer and died at age 38. She was still loyal to Charles until the end. Charles continued to live the good life in prison, He had television, gourmet food. He had lots of friends inside and outside of the prison. In fact, he was even able to get reporters to bribe prison staff to do interviews with him. He talked to journalists, including Richard Neville and his wife, Julie Clark, who later wrote about the case. Richard Neville wrote that Charles admitted to him that he had committed the bikini murders. He wrote about this confession in The Life and Crimes of Charles Sobhraj. Later, even though you can hear Charles on tape, Charles would deny ever making those statements to Richard Neville. Over the years, several other journalists would bribe prison guards to interview Charles. Some of these videos are on YouTube and it's pretty crazy. The guards bring Charles out into the street so they can do the interview in secret, but it means there's basically zero security. It becomes clear that with money, this becomes a totally lawless environment. Charles continued to play the justice system. He was wanted in Thailand for five murders which would have likely led to him receiving the death penalty. And Thailand is not like the American justice system, where it takes 20 to 30 years to impose the death sentence. Charles knew this. He had a plan. He was about to make another escape. In March 1986, Charles, as he'd done so many times in the past, threw a big 42nd birthday party for himself. The guards and the inmates were all drinking and eating tons of food. Then he pulled his longtime trick of drugging everyone with sleeping pills. Then when they fell asleep, he just walked out of jail. The investigators chasing him spent time hanging out in nightclubs around Goa, India, and the cities where Charles was believed to have operated. When the end came, it was pretty anticlimactic. Inspector of the Mumbai police, was the one who apprehended Charles. He saw him in a cafe, walked up to him, and just said, Hi, Charles, how are you? He asked a waiter to bring him some rope, since he didn't have any on him. And he tied Charles' hands up, since he didn't have any handcuffs. Charles' prison term was extended by 10 years as a result of this escape. A lot of people believe that since the cafe where he was found was one of the only places in town with a payphone, that Charles' escape and recapture were both planned by him. Because this way, by the time Charles was released in India, the 20-year statute of limitations on the murder charges had expired in Thailand. So once again, Charles would be a free man. February 17, 1997, Charles was released. He went back to France and once again started living the high life in a suburb of Paris. He actually hired a publicity agent and would charge big sums of money for interviews and to take photographs with him. It's been reported that he charged millions of dollars to sell his life rights for a movie. And that's where the story could have ended. Then there was another crazy plot twist. On September 1st, 2003, a journalist for the Himalayan Times was hanging out at a casino in Kathmandu and was shocked to see Charles Sobhraj. So the journalist started following Charles around and then wrote a news report in the Himalayan Times with photographs of Charles. So like something out of a James Bond movie, the police in Nepal saw the report. They raided the Casino Royale, and they arrested Charles while he was gambling. He told people that he headed back to Kathmandu to set up a mineral water business. Investigators reopened the double murder case from 1975 against Charles. He was sentenced to life in prison for those murders in August of 2004. He appealed the conviction. He claimed that he was sentenced without a trial, that it was unfair, and that the prosecution had not called witnesses. Basically, he said this had been a setup. And he never really answered questions about the motives for the killings, other than referring to protest against what he called Western imperialism in Asia. In another shocking twist, his lawyer announced that Chantal, who was still legally married to Charles in France, was filing a case before the European Court of Human Rights she alleged that they refused to provide Charles with assistance. So it seemed that incredibly, at some point, Chantal and Charles had reconciled. He has said publicly that even though he had another wife at the time who was pregnant, that he got back together with Chantal and that she was loyal to him. He has said he last saw her in 2011. Still, Charles's conviction was confirmed by the Court of Appeals in 2005. So Charles went back to prison but even from behind bars, Charles continued to captivate women. At age 74, he announced his engagement to 24-year-old Nahida Biswas, the daughter of his lawyer who is also famous for her appearance on Indian reality TV. In 2008, his fiancée started releasing press releases for him. He claimed through her that he was never convicted of murder by any court and asked the media not to call him a serial killer. Jail staff in Nepal say that Charles was never really married to Nahida. They say the couple conducted a mass ceremony as part of a prison visiting day, so it wasn't really legal. On July 30th, 2010, the Supreme Court upheld the verdict that was issued by the district court in Kathmandu of a life sentence for the murder of Connie Joe Bronzich in 1975. Over the years, this story has been the subject of several books. Serpentine by Thomas Thompson, the Life and Crimes of Charles Sobhraj by Richard Neville and Julie Clark, which was eventually made into a TV movie called Shadow of the Cobra. The story has also been made into a BBC series, and lots of journalists have written about what they call the bikini murders. In 2014, Charles was finally convicted of the murder of Canadian tourist Laurent Carrière. In 2018, it was reported that Charles was in critical condition and had heart trouble, and that he had been operated on multiple times. When I read that Charles had been operated on, I was actually expecting to read that once again he'd made an escape. But as of December 2020, it's reported that Charles Sabraj is still behind bars. But I'm not sure that this is the end of the story. Police believe that there still may be more bodies out there, including the body of Charles's former partner and best friend, Ajay Chowdhury who was never seen alive again after traveling with Charles on that business trip. Although the Bikini Killer book claims that there have been some of what they call unsubstantiated sightings of Ajay Chowdhury in Germany, they claim that the search for Chowdhury, alive or dead, continues. Red Collar is an Audio Chuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Catherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?